0: Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. Never before have so many people rallied around a common cause. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, learning, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I co-lead a climate venturing practice at the design firm IDEO, supporting early-stage climate founders and organizations. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and I've realized that when it comes to climate action, I'll be a lifelong learner looking for the best ways to have a climate-positive impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you found us. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Find episodes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action At investedinclimate.com. Thanks for joining. Hi, folks. Bienvenidos and welcome. Latin America is one of my favorite places in the world, and so I was thrilled to get to learn about the state of climate tech investing in Latin America for this episode. Today, you'll get to hear three interesting perspectives a climate tech investor, a startup founder, and a car designer rethinking mobility in urban design. Diego Sedebrisky is a climate tech investor based in Mexico City. He's the co-founder and managing partner of a firm called Dalus Capital. Jose Manuel Moller is the founder and CEO of a growing circular economy startup called Algramo. And Fernando Ocaña is a car designer and founder of the firm Veu Alto. Lots of fascinating insights to the climate tech we'll need in the future and to building climate solutions in Latin America. I hope you enjoy as much as I did. So here we go. Vámonos. Diego, José Manuel, Fernando, welcome to Invested in Climate. Very excited to learn from you three today. We have a lot to cover, so let's dive in. Diego, let's start with you. Tell us about the work you're doing at Dalus Capital.
1: We are a venture capital fund. From almost the beginning, we have looked to not only do investments that have a positive financial return, but also that are positive for society and the planet. And that's the reason that, you know, one of the areas in which we invest is what we call it climate innovation, essentially looking to support startups that are building solutions with technology that helps mitigate emissions or adapt to the climate change. And
0: how's it going, Diego? Have you been seeing growth in climate investing and entrepreneurship in recent years? And if so, what's really driving that growth?
1: We have seen it up to now. I think that the driver has been individual entrepreneurs that are deciding to start different startups, different projects to tackle this problem. And we have seen people trying to do things in mobility, smart cities, energy, energy, food security, there is a lot of, you know, Latin America and Mexico are very important in food production, but typically has been a very artisanal industry. And now with climate change, farmers need to have technology that allows them to react to the changes that they are seeing in every season. And we see a lot of entrepreneurs that are, you know, for the first time using technology to develop those tools that can help those farmers react to uh, the changes they are uh, experiencing. So there are, you know, different areas. I think today what we see is a lot, as I say, focus on how to do more renewable energy available to the population, both at large scale, but also at, you know, small scale, you know, at kind of home level or small businesses level. And in general, it's how to do things in a more efficient way so that you consume less resources, less energy, and allow you to transition easily to more renewable sources.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great place to zoom in. Interested in the adoption of solar, absolutely a technology where the technology is there and it's often about deployment and distribution and the business models. Are you seeing a strong uptick and are there emerging businesses helping to really bring solar across Mexico and and uh, the region.
1: Mexico especially is in a great location for solar uh, energy development because of the amount of kind of solar radiation that we get. Probably in the last 10 years we have seen a development of large infrastructure projects. The situation that we have today is that the current Mexican government has not been very keen on this transition to solar and renewable energy in general, clean energies in general. So a lot of these new projects have been stopped right now. And where we see seen opportunities is in the adoption at the level of private companies or, you know, households. The problem there is that, you know, you have to work with the regulation. Today in Mexico, there is Really, a government-owned company is the one that distributes and markets all the electricity in the country. So in order to do anything, you need to work with them. And that is a process that in the last two years has not been easy at all. But despite that, I think there is there has been a push for from large corporations, especially in industrial settings, to install capacity either at their plants or you know in other regions of the country and use that for their own consumption and we have the we have seen also opportunity at households especially in the on, on the larger the ones that consume more electricity because you know they they have a higher fee for electricity from the government so it makes a lot of economic sense to switch to solar you know, own production. And that is happening, but, you know, it, it has happened in other countries, you know, you require somebody that provides the financing to install the capacity and that you can recover that over time. And we're seeing more and more, but it has been more driven by the private sector and kind of individual um, consumption rather than than the government in the last two years, which is, you know, very sad.
0: Yeah. As an investor, you are surely scouring the market for opportunities that are right time in terms of the policy being favorable conditions, in terms of the technology being there or having a pathway to be there and a market that is ready. So I'm curious, what are those opportunities within climate that you are really looking for and most excited about, particularly for Mexico and for Latin America?
1: In general, what we see in in Mexico is that most technology startups are not doing deep science or deep tech. What they are doing is they're applying proven technology to solve a problem in a more efficient or a much cheaper way. And the best example of that is fintech in general, where people are not creating something you know, a new technology, but they are taking something that exists and putting together to um, a specific application, and they can do it 10 times better or 10 times cheaper than kind of an incumbent will do it. And I think that is true for most verticals in the economy in these emerging markets. I think one of the issues that we have is. As opposed to, for example, the U.S., kind of the role of academia, of the universities in, you know, creating new science, new technology, but really that jumping out to kind of the private sector is not happening. I mean, there might be some developments in technologies at universities, but they stay there and we don't have the right channels, the right transfer agencies that will take that and really provides to somebody else that will create a product around it and will go to the market and sell it. So in that sense, I think it's not impossible, but I think it will be hard for us to see many opportunities where people are building something completely new, kind of in, in digital technology especially. I think the one area where we have seen kind of uh, entrepreneurs doing interesting things using deep science is in biotech especially that is happening in some countries in in argentina there is a lot of activity going on where um, universities labs are building are creating new biotech solutions to problems and somehow entrepreneurs are taking that and start to deploy it commercially
0: thanks diego and so what kind of deal flow are you seeing these days at Deloose?
1: We have a, a broad pipeline of opportunities that you receive. I can, we have seen opportunities in mobility that complements public transportation with, you know, from electric bikes, other collective transport in a way that uh, will be more efficient. We have seen a lot of developments on materials, especially used for construction for building materials, but using recycled material. And that is a way you are kind of reducing the garbage, the waste, but at the same time, you are using less resources and energy, creating kind of a product that can be used for building different types of um, buildings. Those are the ones that we we'll see. And, and the other, as I mentioned, I think in, in AgTech, we have seen a lot of people building different solutions that will allow farmers from very small to large ones, to increase their production by being more efficient, reduce the amount of uh, resources that they need for to get the same level of production or even more efficient production, more yield. We have seen many opportunities in the circular economy space, um, but many of those are, you know, very hard to scale. Uh, we think that Algramo is different. They partner with the CPGs, the consumer product brands, and the retailers, and really help them with a solution to reduce single-use plastic in packaging, and therefore the plastic waste that, you know, is being generated at kind of a ridiculous amount.
0: This seems a perfect opportunity to hear more about Algramo. I'll confess, I was very excited when I was preparing for this episode and saw that Daluz invested in Algramo. I actually learned about Algramo about six years ago. My team at IDEO organized the Circular Design Challenge, a $1 million startup competition, and Algramo was one of our winners. I participated in our selection workshop back then, and so I got to learn a lot about Algramo, and I've been a big fan ever since. So I was thrilled to have an excuse to reach out to Jose Manuel, Algramo's founder. Jose Manuel, tell us, what is Algramo? How did it get started, and what's the problem
2: you're aiming to solve? So first of all, a grammo means by the gram, and the story behind it is I started this company to try to solve three problems. The first one is what we call the poverty tax that happens when the families, they don't have enough resources to get the largest packaging, and they're forced to get the smallest one, like the sachet or quarter liter of cooking oil, et cetera. And doing that, compared with the families that they have enough resources, they pay up to 40 to 50% more because the liquidity doesn't allow them to get that discount. That's the first problem that we're trying to tackle. The second one that is really well linked with that one is the packaging waste, all the extra packaging and packing that we produce. And the third one is how we make this solution on how we could solve this solution in a large scale. So what we are, we're a tech platform that we help the biggest CPGs, such as Unilever, Nestle, Coke, Walmart, et cetera, to offer their product through a refill solution through machines, with what we call the packaging as a wallet, which is a smart packaging that offers us traceability for quality and impact. And we sell those units with our partners in retail space or doing home delivery in different locations.
0: Very good. And I've seen what this looks like, but maybe you could describe for our listeners. If you walk into a store, rather than seeing products sitting in plastic packaging, what does a consumer find?
2: Uh, this could be like, imagine like an ATM for products. So if you're into a retail store, you are in the home care aisle, for example, purchasing some laundry detergent. And then next to the single-use bottle, you will see that this dispenser machine that you're going to be able to refill your bottle uh, like in a gas station. So that's that's the point, to encourage consumer to bring the reuser bottle. And always, this is cheaper than single-use. That's a really relevant point. So we offer a cheaper solution based on reuse.
0: Fantastic. And you describe it as a technology company. How is technology enabling consumers to make this an easy experience?
2: Our challenge in, in El Gramo is how to change consumer behavior more than the technology itself. to be honest. So to do that, we need to do this in a large scale. And that means to manage and operate many things at the same time globally. And to do that, we use technology to trace, to have this system IoT connected for supply chain, replenishment, impact, traceability, all of that happens uh, in real time uh, through our platform. So to secure uh, product safety, to secure supply chain, to secure impact, to manage the money that we have through the deposit into a packaging. So all of that is through our platform.
0: It's interesting that you focus on behavior change. That's something that can be really challenging. I'm curious how that's going and something that you're learning as you're working with more consumers and seeing what they're willing to change and how to overcome barriers to changing consumer
3: behavior.
2: From our perspective, that's the more challenging part. Uh, Today, to have a dispensing machine or even an app, it's not rocket science, literally. It's about how I convince you to bring back something into a shop. For that, we have been working a lot in different incentives to analyze different message, uh, location, prices, packaging, brands, etc. And I would say part of the value of Algramo is to understand what different type of customer do they need, because there's many different types of customers, some of them, they don't want to have an app or opt-in uh, anything. Others, they want to share this on social media. Others, want are focused on price. So we are starting to learn what different type of customers, what we need to offer to each of them to do this in, in large scale.
0: When we're getting started, you mentioned that it's hard to scale businesses in the circular economy space, but that you think without Gramo, you're on the path to scale. Uh, tell us more.
2: Yeah, sometimes even some people could say that scaling and circular economy could be opposite meanings so maybe local means more sustainable so we crack this model to try to be as lean and, and light as possible and we also understand it took us we have been doing this for 10 years so it took us a while to understand the industry the market in which product categories this could happen and should happen in the coming years and now we are scaling much more aggressively in the last 2 years we have been adding more countries uh, brands etc I would say that now we have cracked the model from the business units perspective, but also from the user and, and the brands and retailer. So where we are today, we're in a phase where we already have the brand, we have the partnership, and we are proving with real data that people is testing this, is using it, they're bringing back their package, and this is scalable.
0: Right. So you are seeing the behavior change, and you started in Chile, and you've started to expand to other markets. Is that right?
2: Yeah, our main market, it's Chile, still Chile, where where we started. We started first with our own wide-level products in the mom-pop stores in Chile. We started with a network of 1,000 mom-pop stores. Now we're in 5,000 with a pre-filled solution. Um, Then we scale up with Unilever in home delivery uh, solution with dispenser that we were bringing at the user's place, especially during COVID. Then we had Walmart in Chile. So a month ago, we launched with Lidl here in the UK. I'm I'm based in London now. Uh, In New York, we have some pilots, and now we're in conversation for Mexico, Canada, U.S. We learned your retailer to to scale up. But still, our main business still in Chile is our lab uh, market to test the products, but we're expanding much more aggressively in the coming years. Thank you, José Manuel.
0: Let's turn now to Fernando, as you're likewise seeing your market as a laboratory for a solution that can scale globally. Tell us, what are you working on?
3: Okay, great. Well, I'm a car designer. I've been working for 13, 15 years, most of this time in Europe. I worked for various different brands, and uh, now I'm working with the government of Mexico City on the redesign of
1: uh, our,
3: you could call it a uh, tuk-tuk fleet, a uh, lightweight taxi fleet, and uh, we're working on an uh, electric version of it. So that's basically what uh, we're, we're looking at. Fernando, tell us more. What's the
0: problem you're solving, and what's problematic about the current solution to mobility in Mexico City?
3: Well, mototaxis are an informal fleet of about between thirty and 50,000 vehicles that are operating in the periphery of Mexico City as passenger services, as taxi. They're not legally recognized as taxis. They could be understood as tuk-tuks globally. Although there's different variants of them. There's one that is a motorcycle pulling like a, like a homemade metallic cage. And there's another one that is an old American electric golf cart. And finally, there's the Asian tuk tuk rickshaw, let's say. So that's uh, the work, uh, the, the, the transportation segment we're, we're working with. It's problematic in the sense that it's highly unsafe in the event of a collision, and it is problematic also because of the amount of emissions coming out of uh, the exhaust pipes of these vehicles that were designed 50 years ago and that are not designed for the load they're carrying. But uh, it is also, I think, one of the smartest uh, last mile transportation systems in the world because these are very lightweight vehicles and at the end i think we can open up discussions about where the future of transportation should go but i'm convinced that uh, going electric the way the market is looking at is not really the answer i think electric cars are too heavy we're designing over two tons vehicles that's a lot of plastic that's a lot of metal that's a lot of logistic processes um That's a lot of emissions. We're also designing cars that are privately owned and and very expensive, thus excluding the majority of the world's population, actually. Ultimately, we're also designing vehicles to be sold. We haven't yet achieved a circular uh, business model through which we work on how many less vehicles we're going to make next year, as opposed to today's how many more vehicles we're going to sell next year. So that's crucial. And uh, ultimately, also, where is the energy coming from is going to be a key question. So I think uh, moto-taxis in Mexico City are uh, a really good stepping stone towards these the future of these conversations.
0: Definitely a great stepping stone and also one that will really impact millions of people. So Fernando, tell us, what have you developed so far?
3: We have uh, presented our first prototype. It's a um, 400-kilogram vehicle. It should be less, actually. Uh, it's the very first one, so we've made some mistakes, obviously. Um, but it's a much safer vehicle. Uh, it has seat belts for once, but also it has a, a structure that protects uh, its occupants in the event of a collision, and it's also electric, so it's it's not uh, emitting CO2 from an exhaust pipe, and that's already solving the two main issues the government of Mexico City wanted to solve before going into a standardization program. Uh, you could call it through which they're going to make moto-taxis, which are currently informal, a legal mode of passenger services. So they commissioned me to do this project to basically set the bar on where the vehicles operating in this system should uh, more or less be. And uh, we are working now on a company that's going to manufacture these vehicles, but also uh, on the whole cluster of um the social context of uh, mototaxi in Mexico City is, is also quite interesting. And obviously, the, the manufacturing, industrial, and even the energy uh, supply decisions that are going to be important for the future of this project. So it's complex, but also, you know, I don't know if you've been to Mexico City. I haven't. I've
0: heard great things.
3: You haven't? Okay, well, you're very welcome to come. It's very chaotic. It's quite messy. But, uh, I think it's interesting to learn from the mess and to, and to use the mess as an opportunity. This is one of those countries where rules haven't fully been set. So if we're going to make drastic changes towards the future, I think this might be one of those places where you can start really shaping different policies and different technological systems and, uh, well, that's where where I am in terms of transportation.
0: Well, I think that what you refer to as the mass part of that is just how crowded Mexico City is. And it is probably a great place to experiment for many dense cities uh, around the world. Is that part of the problem that you're aiming to solve? And one of the reasons why smaller, lightweight, uh, less expensive vehicles can make a difference?
3: For sure. I mean, that's one part of it. I would go Further in history, I go to colonialism to try to understand what happened here and where the mess is coming from. But the reality is that um, we are too many living in one city. Uh, It's a city of uh, around 20 million people. Uh, We don't even know how how many there are, actually. But it's interesting to consider the scale um, possibility. Also, if we're going to standardize this, uh, in, in, in the specific case of my work, this transportation segment that is probably... A fleet of around 50,000 vehicles. Then we have access to larger questions, I, I understand, in terms of energy. For example, there's a huge issue with green hydrogen. Who's going to throw the first stone, right? Car companies will say we don't have car fleets, hydrogen car fleets, because there's no hydrogen infrastructure. Hydrogen infrastructure companies will say there's no demand for it, so we haven't released it yet. I think if we were to work strategically, we could look at this as an opportunity to do both hydrogen cars, but also a green hydrogen supply. We have a lot of renewable energy in this country that is not being used. So that's one of the key things. And in terms of the future, I think Mexico was one of those countries that adopted American and European policies for city design in terms of cities designed designed around cars. And uh, the reality is that we don't have enough space for all those cars that we have so if we were to strengthen the context of last mile transportation we would inevitably see more investment being thrown at uh, long distance public transportation systems so maybe this is one of those ways in which we can start pushing the car out of the city uh, which makes me very hopeful and very excited
0: fascinating to hear a car designer talk about an aspiration to get rid of cars from cities. Tell us a bit more, because I think what you're talking about isn't just the future of cars and car design, but really urban design and sustainable design. And in some ways, using Mexico City as a laboratory that we can learn from and uh, where we can experiment in ways that help us reimagine how we can move about cities and live more sustainably, particularly in dense urban environments.
3: I'm glad you would look at it that way. It's been one of the, the, key, well, the key aspects of my work coming back home. I, I lived in Europe for many years and I saw the way they worked and they operated and, and, and it was all great. And coming back was, for me, of great value because it means using this uh, space, this city, this uh, huge density of people as an environment to prototype new ways of looking at the needs of the future of my industry. That's something, as I was saying earlier, I don't think you could do that. In fact, I tried to do this project many years ago in Europe, and I I wouldn't find traction for it. So it's really an honor um, for me to think that I could come back home as a car designer. Remember, there's no car design industry in Mexico. And to be able to uh, be challenging the issues from within and to use Mexico City as a laboratory, that's, that's fascinating for me.
0: Diego, let's go back to you with this question of learning from Mexico and Latin American markets. Are there ways in which Mexico offers a glimpse of the future?
1: Well, I think one of the things that we have in Mexico is that um, the population is concentrated in a number of very large cities. And, you know, Mexico City is the best example. I mean, we have a population of more than 20 million people in a relatively small area. And I think that dense concentration of population really give you kind of the framework where you can develop you know some type of solutions that if they work here for sure they are gonna work in a number of cities in emerging markets and potentially some of them in in more developed markets kind of the the challenges on on one hand being in in this Dense locations have a lot of challenges, and how you do, you know, from things like physical distribution, how how you use kind of resources. But on the other hand, you are probably one solution can be applied and can be distributed in a much more efficient way than if you have to go to you know a very dispersed areas. You know, one of the things that we see even. For example, when you look at distribution of products, of food, the challenges that we see in other areas, here you can have somebody with a very efficient distribution using non-fossil fuel solutions, you know, very efficient. In a way, you know, somebody can distribute over a relatively small blocks of the city, a huge amount of uh, products because it's so dense. And I think that make it Whoever builds a solution that works here can translate it to other places very efficiently, I think, given the, the, the challenges that normally we face. Fernando, let's go back to you. What's your take on this issue?
3: Well, there was this issue question in my mind when I came back. I lived many years in Sweden. If you've ever been, there's this like very heavy policy on, on recycling. and like It's not only just policy. It's a culture of recycling. Everyone's separating their garbage, and the system works very efficiently. However, uh, when I came back home, there was a sense that no one was recycling and that everything was just being mixed. And in reality, looking more into the issue, you realize that there's a very, very large industry in Mexico recycling everything that comes out of everybody's garbage. So I'm quite uh, um, oriented to think that the future of industry has a lot to do with the way things already work in countries like Mexico where we don't waste anything. We don't throw anything away in terms of everything is always being reused. And uh, and that's not just an approach to garbage, that's an approach to consumerism as well. That's one of the consequences of poverty actually. So I'm thinking the future of the world has a lot to do with the way we already live in this uh, in these countries. And there's a lot to learn and there's a lot of strategic work to be done in terms of engineering and business development and design to bring into these sort of uh, mentalities and these cultures and to try to work around with designing in, in ways that have to do with not maybe buying so much stuff. Jose Manuel, let's turn to you.
0: You've been building a successful circular economy company based off your experience in Chile. So I'm curious. Do you agree with this idea that Latin America is a great place to develop solutions that reduce or prevent waste, and that there's perhaps
2: a pre-existing interest in being less wasteful? I agree 100% with that. For example, just to give you a real, real world example. Today, I'm, I'm based now in London, in the UK, and uh, Coke has launched one of the most innovative solutions that I mentioned here. It's the pre-filled uh, bottle. That means like it's a bottle that you bring back and then they reuse it. This type of solution has been in Latin market for 50 years, to say in some way. And today, in the planet where there are more reuse around beverages, it's by far Latin. And this wasn't because of the environment, to be honest, because it was the cheapest solution. So when you rethink model, having the people and the environment as a focus, you will get some type of solution that we have been seeing in Latin, but now we could expand in other categories. Actually, Agava was really inspired by that behavior in the MAMP up stores. And then that's was the first step, that's why we start with our own pre-filled model in the beginning. And then we start working with the CBGs. But I would say that today it's a great environment and there's a lot of startups working around this because uh, the other side that it's one of the regions that is going to be more affected by the climate crisis. So we have the all the nature that is going to be affected, all the parts, the Amazon, the forest, the mountains, etc. So it's a region where people also is concerned about how to protect those. And we could maybe leapfrog moving from not having a great solution or, I don't know, the best packaging solution from single use to reuse, avoiding hopefully recycling, which today could be the middle ground that in many places still like the silver bullet, but in my opinion, recycling shouldn't be part of the circular economy even.
0: Beyond circular economy and the need to reduce waste, are you seeing other ways that the experience in Latin America and startups that are developing Businesses in that environment are, in some ways, glimpses of the future or opportunities for other markets to learn from something unique about what's happening in that context.
2: I would say that there's a opportunity to learn from the experience of regions or the global south more than just Latin. I would say African and, and South Asia also has, has a lot in common. When you lack of resources, reuse it's part of your daily life, and you're not doing it because it's it's trendy or it's hipster. It's the only way that you have. For example, reuse has been part of the Indian market for many years in Africa as well and in LATAM, because people cannot afford to pollute in, say, in some way. And the, the region who pollute more are the ones with the higher income. So as our learned from the mom-pop stores and from the market, I, I would say that there's a lot of learnings and things that have been happening in this type of market that we could expand and extrapolate to, to other regions. For example, just to give you a really concrete example, something that I've seen in Colombia, in the north of Colombia, in the Caribbean zone, uh, we had a pilot some years ago there, and we were selling um, laundry detergent. But we realized that most of the families they didn't have a washing machine at home. And I said, okay, why these people is purchasing this product, even if they don't have a washing machine? But because they couldn't afford a washing machine, there was a service that was a guy in a motorbike renting a washing machine per hour. So you were renting the washing machine at your home for an hour, and then you wash your clothes. That could be seen from two sides. One could be, okay, those customers are so poor that they cannot afford a washing machine. But I'm quite sure if you launch this solution in, I don't know, in short, here year in, in London or in, in Brooklyn, in New York, would be the most trendy solution, like to share and not own uh, things. So that type of things give you an insight of, okay, we could be really creative when we're lacking of resources. And today, circular economy is about reusing and a lack of resources, but solve the problem. So that's why I think this the Global South, more than just LATAM, could be a really good inspiration to rethink and to learn, okay, what type of solution we have been seen working and how we could extrapolate that into other industries.
0: Fernando, back to you. Is affordability one of the things that's driving your work as
3: well? that is a huge part of my work and my company's work i would say that's even like a key issue of my beef with the auto industry we're designing stuff for not even the 1% like we're we're designing electric cars as if they're going to solve the fact that the industry is responsible for 11% of the global emissions causing global warming and um uh, we're going to solve that by making electric cars that only 0.8% of the global population can buy. That's that's not mathematically correct in terms of a global transition. But that's also, as you were saying, not, not an act of environmental justice. We're not including all these people in our world into a transition. We're not welcoming them. We're not designing strategically for them. And I think that's one of the key insights of uh, going to work into making the transportation mode for one of the most uh, low-income segments of, of our society, a uh, sustainable transportation fleet. Uh, that's key. We're working on making these strategies and these actions to combat climate change available to everyone. That brings me to, to something even larger, actually. Um, how are we going to finance this? We we understand we did a demographic study in Tlahuac and Iztapalapa, the, the regions in Mexico City most uh, highly populated by motor taxis. And uh The reality is that people who use these vehicles are not going to be able to afford, forget hydrogen version of them, uh, an electric uh, version of them. So how are we going to work uh, strategically with business innovation to externalize, let's say, the adoption costs of uh, of this climate innovations? That's key. And that's what we're working on. That's what we need help towards.
0: I'd love to zoom out now for a minute and just hear about the state of climate tech in the region. Diego, let's hear from you. How would you describe the state of climate tech, particularly in Mexico? It's
1: an emerging ecosystem in Mexico today, but we are seeing every day more entrepreneurs, founders that are seeing the problems that we face and are starting to develop solutions that will help solve the, the climate change problem that we all face. You know, one of the things that we have been doing is not only investing but trying to do initiatives to help kickstart the development of that ecosystem. For example, next week we are doing the first Climate Innovation Summit in Mexico City, where we, together, are doing this with a number of sponsors. One of them is the U.S. State Department, uh, and we will have the, the U.S. Ambassador in Mexico introducing and uh, or introducing the sessions and but the idea is to have an space for networking, for people to get together, both entrepreneurs, founders, investors, other relevant players, actors in the ecosystem, and really start this dialogue and help that things happen faster. Because you know, time is running out for all of us. So we, we think that we want to contribute with the experience that we have in order to, for people to be able to find solutions to the climate change problem.
0: That's great. Thanks, Diego. You know, by the time this episode airs, the summit will have already happened. But in our show notes, we'll make sure to include a link to your website with recordings from the event. Now, Jose Manuel, back to you. You described Chile as a great platform to get started, but a small market. So how important was it to gain visibility through global contests like the Circular Design Challenge that I mentioned
2: or through other opportunities? Uh, This is key. We're still like being a small startup from Chile that is the end of the world, literally. And uh, we need to have support and visibility to convince the biggest players. Because at the end, to be on the radar of this big corporation, we need support, we need networks. And we need these awards and recognitions that at the end put us on the map. Because we have a great solution, but if we don't have the chance to pitch to the right people at the right moment, this is impossible to escape. So I would say that the role to put and to support this emerging solution is critical because the solution already exists. The thing is, maybe they're not having the right conversation. They don't have the right connections. So that's a space where we need to, to improve. For example, the collaboration with on Grammo was a great example because for us, Is like a a validation that help us to then get introduced to other brands, because reduce the risk, because no one knows. Okay, what does it mean a tech company from Chile? Okay, first of all, what do I know about Chile? Maybe they don't know anything, but if we have this support from different networks, could reduce that risk and help us to scale up uh, our solution. It's more than known that the size of the crisis that we have today, but the thing that I was mentioning now at the end is not that common because it's always easy to say collaboration, but collaboration means to share the pie with someone else and that is something that we haven't been teach anywhere so the companies that are designed to compete the retailers are designed to compete everyone is trying to compete and to collaborate we need new skills that uh, we need to learn from scratch so i would say that we should understand that we are everyone in same ship and we are under the same problem and if we don't truly collaborate and we are radical on what we're doing it's going to be too late jose manuel thank you
0: diego We began with you, so let's let you close us out as well. Any final thoughts?
1: I do think that all of us can contribute by our personal choices and what we consume and how. That is very important. But I think that more important than that is the activists. How we pressure our elected officials and how we choose the right officials and politicians that will put the policies in place to fight climate change. I think a lot of changes that we need as societies they need to come not from kind of the individual point of view they need to come from policy changes so we have to make sure that we elect the people that can really implement those changes and put pressure on them to do the changes I think all your audience should think about that and really put time into select and vote for the right people that can help us achieve success on this. Diego, Jose Manuel,
0: Fernando, thank you so much for joining us. It was so great to have you on Invested in Climate. I learned a lot and I'm wishing you all the luck for the great work that you're doing.
2: Oh, thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Jason. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.